I think I'd like to begin by thanking you, those of you who were able to come out yesterday and to uh, support Pat and to be with us as we had the graveside service for the departure of Wayne, Pat's brother Wayne. And so we uh, are so thankful for so many things, so many, we believe the Lord was there to assist at every step of the way in all the different things. We received the call Wednesday at 4 o'clock in the morning. We received the call that he had passed away in his sleep at the Davy home. And so there were a lot of things that transpired between Wednesday and Saturday and yesterday. And uh, we, needed, we needed so much guidance and assistance and help, both from this world and from the one in which we are intending to move one of these days. And we received assistance from both, especially from above, which we are so grateful for. And so this morning it brings me to a period of time in which I have not uh, spent an enormous amount of time in contemplating for the morning, but Pat, she's always there, and she says, uh, if I say I'm not ready, she says, oh, you're always ready. So she has, <laughs> she has all the confidence in the world, even when I may lack some. But we don't put confidence in ourselves in any event, and we just, uh, I want to maybe share a few thoughts with you this morning. And a couple of observations that um, I'd like to begin with. And one is that there must be there must be something on the inside of people that agrees with what you have to say and offer them. There must be something on the inside that resonates. And I think a classic example of this is just communication and how we communicate with words. And if someone comes and speaks to you in a language that you don't understand, then there's nothing on the inside of you to receive what they're saying. And so you stand there looking at them and you don't know what they're saying. So, But there's nothing on the inside of you to agree, disagree, or to absorb or receive what it is they're saying. So that's a classic example of what uh, I'm thinking about this morning as I begin because I have noticed that our culture is entering a kind of twilight zone and fading fast. And I'm very concerned, extremely concerned by it because I see that even when we come to talk about the things of God and open the pages of of sacred scripture and read from them, oftentimes there's an absence of that in the people with whom we are speaking and addressing, an ability to really understand what is being said and to value what is being said and to have, for example, within themselves that which says um, the word of God is authoritative. And what is being read and what, is, and what I'm hearing right now is authoritative and comes from God. This is God's word to me. See, the society is losing that. It's losing that. And it's as if someone comes with a language with which they do, they're not familiar and don't understand. And so we say, um, how can we address, how can we share, what can we say that would... That would uh, go around or circumvent that, that we can communicate what the Lord has to say to people that don't have that on the inside 
that uh, agrees with the word of God when the scripture is read. There's kind of a growing illiteracy with regards to the scripture and the ideas that scripture gives us. The truths, the basic fundamental truths of the Christian faith. Fundamental things. You know, when you, when you exchange ideas with people, there are certain fundamental things that, that both of you have to have in order to exchange an idea on anything. There has to be some fundamental things that you're both familiar with. And when you talk about a truck, I mean, I'm just being real simple. You talk about a truck, you talk about a tractor, you talk about a dishwasher, you talk about anything. The person has to have some, you have to be on a kind of a mutual place and space so that you know these terms that are being used and what they mean. And so when the great truths of the gospel are opened up, we have entered a period of time when many, many within our society do not understand the basic truths of the gospel. Why is that? So the words often that are offered are rendered meaningless. And the whole idea of communicating words is to communicate meaning. But when the words that are offered don't communicate meaning, but are meaningless, then that's a tragedy in process. And this is, this is where we are. Whose fault is this? Where could the blame be laid? And I say that the blame, for the most part, must be laid at the feet of the professional clergy. It must be laid there. How could it be laid anywhere else except at the feet of the so-called professional clergy? Who have resorted to saying to people what they believe the people want to hear. And so if you spend an, a generation or two telling people what they want to hear and the things that the people want to hear are changing and becoming more worldly and devolving, okay, becoming secular, anti-God, anti-Bible, anti, so that truth becomes something that people fabricate and manufacture within themselves and so that terms like, well, whatever is your truth, you have your truth, you know, I hope you are loyal to your truth. Your truth. And so that's the kind of idea now that is becoming very fashionable and people liked and gravitate towards this idea that they could have a truth that would be as valuable as anybody else's truth would be. Well now, what do you do with the truth of God that stands in authority over all things? And so the professional clergy has permitted by saying to people what they think the people want to hear, they have left the word of God and the spirit of the word and the fundamental meaning of the word. And there's a kind of a void or a vacuum that has been created by that. Well, nature abhors a vacuum. And in any place, no matter where it is, if there's a vacuum or an absence of something, guess what? Somebody's going to rush in and fill that. And so what we have now happening is we have many others who are rushing in and filling this vacuum. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like that. I'm doing that. My background is not the typical background to stand in, in a pulpit. I come from a different kind of background. My perspective is that I was conscripted. My perspective is that I was enlisted from another employee. 
and I was called from another employee into this kind of employee. That's my perspective. But at the same time, there are hundreds and thousands of others who are coming into this kind of vacuum too. You see, they're coming into this place too. Some of them are called of God to come into it. Some of them are not. Some of them are unhinged and have no fundamental framework and foundation about the Christian faith. And so it's a very dangerous thing because we have people coming in and they are taking up the mantle or taking up the baton, whatever you like, and saying the things to the people that others are not. But yet, where do they come from? And what qualifies them to speak? And so we have confusion. And we have all kinds of things that are being said, and some of them are really wonderful things that are being said, and some of them are absolutely not. And so we've been focusing for the last couple of weeks on the idea of evangelism, and then last Sunday we talked a l- spoke a little bit together about unhindered intercession and those things that hinder our prayers. This morning I want to share with you a little bit about the fifth column fifth column. you know where the term fifth column phrase, fifth column comes from? It says it's a translation of the Spanish, and I won't try to pronounce the Spanish, but it's a translation that comes from the Spanish. It was inspired by a boast by a rebel general, Emilio Mola was his name, during the Spanish Civil War. And Mola predicted that Madrid would fall as four columns of rebel soldiers or troops approaching the city were joined by another hidden column of sympathizers within the city of Madrid. And so in an October 1936 article in the New York Times, William Carney described those secret rebel supporters as the fifth column. This is 1936, so it's not that old, this phrase, fifth column. So he described the the sympathizers within the city of Madrid that the rebel general was counting on as a fifth column. There were four other columns out there on the outside approaching the city. And it says an uh, English speaker seized upon the term. It gained widespread popularity under Ernest Hemingway. He used it in the title of a 1938 book. And it was often applied with various other terms to the Nazi support within foreign nations during World War II. And so as the Nazi regime spread its influenced, it had a lot of supporters in various places, and so the term fifth column was used there. So it has been used uh, largely as an enemy within, the idea of an enemy within, the enemy within that will agree with the forces that are on the outside, and so that the victory of the overthrow will be largely responsible as a result of this force within that is hidden, it can't be seen. What I'd like to do this morning is I want to take this term, the fifth column, and I want to convert it. I want to convert it. And I want to refer to, not that, but I want to refer to the ultimate concept of a fifth column or that power, that influence within that determines the success and without which all those influences from the outside are ineffective and will fail completely dependent on the influence on the inside. That's what we want to talk about this morning, which is the ultimate 
example of a fifth column, only I might not call it a column. And to do that this morning with you, I want to read a few verses with you from Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah, the fourth chapter. This is, the, uh, this is wonderful, and I'll just offer a little bit of commentary on some of these verses this morning and then share with, share with a closing thought. It says, The angel who was speaking with me then re- uh, returned and roused me as one awakened out of sleep. And he asked me, What do you see? The angel speaking with the writer says, what do you see? said, I replied, I see a solid gold lampstand there with a bowl on its top and it has seven lamps on it and seven channels for each of the lamps on its top. There are also two olive trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. But the part about this that is so interesting to me right off at the beginning is he is roused out of a kind of sleep, but it's not really asleep, but it's like that. And an angel, a messenger from God, asks the question, what do you see? And I find this in many places throughout the scripture where the Lord speaks to someone and says, what do you see? What do you see? And then the individual, the human, responds and says, well, I see, I see this, I see this. You see, Jeremiah is like that. And with all due respect, you are like that. And I am like that. Because we are engaged. We are engaged by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And oftentimes, questions are posed of us. And we respond to the question that is posed of us. And in that dynamic of communication between the Word, the Spirit of God, and ourselves, what comes to us is revelation from God. Revelation. And so now the writer is describing that which is he, he is privileged to see. And how could he see these things? Because he sees this, these things because they are revealed to him by way of vision. These things are shown to him by way of vision. So it's revealed. It's revealed. And then he comes to understand what it is, what the meaning of that which is revealed. See, all of this is revealed truth. This is what the scripture really is. It's a revealed truth. It's not something we figure out. It's not something that we try to understand ourselves. It's not we don't get together in a group and say, well, what do you think? What do you think? What does this passage mean to you? Some people feel that's Bible study. That's really not. That's a discussion. That might be valuable to some people, you know, but that's really not the essence of what the Bible is. The Bible is to be revealed and the Spirit of God often comes to you and to me and says, what about this? What, does this? what about this? So if the Lord says to you, what do you see here? That's great. But if it's just a discussion with a bunch of other friends to get your ideas on something, there's very little value in that. And so the angel said to me, what do you see? And I replied, I see a solid gold lampstand There, I see it with a bowl on the top. Can you see it in your mind's eye? I thought I would bring a little picture of it this morning. And then every picture I looked at, I said, no, no, no. It was like the parade of Jesse's sons coming in to see if they were the one. (laughs) No, 
No, and I never did come to the youngest. I never did come to the acceptable picture, so that's why I don't have one. But see, that was my idea. That was just my idea. It would be kind of nice to have a picture of all this. No. Because you can paint a picture from the Word. Yeah. So I see this go- uh, solid gold lampstand. There's a bowl on top. It has seven lamps on it. Candelabra, if you like. It has seven lamps on it and seven channels for each of the lamps. So each of the lamps has a channel. It's got a bowl, and from the bowl will come these channels, and the channels will go to the lamps. I wonder what the bowl's for. What are most bowls for? To contain something, to hold something. I wonder what it's going to hold. Well, whatever it holds is going to go through those channels, and it's going to go to the lamps. Well, what? The lamps... Well, the lamps need oil to burn. So ah, the bowl is going to contain some kind of oil. Okay, so that's what he sees. But it's all revealed. He said, then I asked the angel who was speaking with me. An angel, of course, means a messenger of God. A messenger of God. Messenger of the Lord. I said to him, what are these, my Lord? What are these? And he said, don't you know what they are? See the dialogue? He said, don't you know what they are? And, and I said, no, my Lord. See, I think these words are so important. Because we can offer. We can offer meaning for things. And I don't want to do that. Do you really want to offer your own meaning? Or do you want the Lord to show you the real meaning of things? Do you want him to reveal the truth to you? Or do you want to fill in the blanks yourself? I say no. Don't fill in the blanks. Even this passage this morning, there's some of these that I feel very confident in speaking and sharing on. There's a little bit of this that I do not. You'll find out the ones I do not because I'll likely just kind of move past them. He said, don't you know what they are? And the angel replied, who was speaking with me? And I said, no, my Lord. He's going to wait now for the truth to be revealed. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord for him to reveal his truth to you. Don't buy into things. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon him. And he answered me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by strength or by might. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, and all of this vision is intended to convey this idea. That it's not about external things, that the supply to permit the great work to occur, to sustain it, and to finish building this house, the capability, the ability to finish this task of building this great house, is going to be given by the Lord, is going to be provided by His Spirit, by His Word and Spirit, not by any human agency. And then it says in verse 7, What are you, great mountain or obstacle that stands in the way? 
What are you, great obstacle or great mountain before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain. In other words, the great difficulty will disappear. The mountain of difficulty will become a plain. And how will that happen? Not by your might, not by your power, not by human agency. But by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how it will happen. By my spirit. You see the supply? You see the olive trees on each side? And the olive oil is going into the bowl? And no human being is doing that. So we've been talking about this evangelism and speaking about unhindered intercession. This is the authority and the power and the ability that permits all of those wonderful things to happen that are in the will of God to occur. Not willing that any should perish, but all would come and receive the atoning sacrifice of His Son. And when we pray for the salvation of the lost and of our loved ones, we are praying in the will of God. And how often do we think that if we did this and if we did that and if this other happened and if somebody said this, then boy, that would help that if they heard this evangelist or they went to this retreat or whatever it is, oh, it would accomplish all these things. No, 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 it doesn't. What accomplishes these things is the Lord. His word, His spirit accomplishes these things. And we put our confidence in Him. We put our confidence in that which makes provision to the bowl. And we don't do that. And we cooperate. Let's cooperate with it when he calls us to it. But it's his work. And so I'll read it again. What are you, great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain. And he will bring out the capstone. Zerubbabel will bring out the capstone. You know what the capstone is? The capstone is basically it. (laughs) Somebody said it's the crowning achievement. Uh, There's different words uh, for it. But it's that stone on the top. And, you know, before this stone was laid, there's mortar laid on top of the stone, another stone, mortar and another stone, mortar and another stone. Capstone is the stone. There will never be another stone on top of this one. It's the finishing stone. It's the completed work. And on the top of the capstone, they would put the, a little slanted uh, mortar on top that was slanted so that the rain would run off. And that's the capstone. That's it. It's finished. And this idea is that Zerubbabel, the obstacle before him and in front of him will disappear and the mountain will become a plain and he will bring out the capstone. He'll finish the work. It'll be completed. And it will be accompanied by this. When it's completed and it will be accompanied by shouts of grace, grace to it. Grace, grace to it. And grace is the, op- is the, is the working of God's spirit and its manifestation in the life. That's what grace is. Says then the word of the Lord came to me. Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who scorns the day of small things? 
these seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. And I ask him, what are the two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And I question him further. What are the two olive branches besides the two gold conduits from which golden oil pours out? And then he inquired of me, don't you know what these are? Again, honestly says, no, I don't. That's the greatest thing you can do oftentimes. Why do people not do that more often? I just have to share with you this morning that I found in my own experience and I walk very humbly before the Lord and don't put ultimate confidence in my own experience. I am only thankful for the experiences that I've had that I believe are trustworthy. But I have found that when oftentimes a principle that when I come to a place where I say, I do not know what this is. I don't know what this is. I don't know. When I come to that place, my experience has been invariably that it won't be long until the answer will come. And the answer will come, and I'll know the answer when it comes, but it doesn't come from me. It's like the olive trees on the side that provide to the bowl that provides for the light on the lamp. And then the light comes on and I say, oh, I see. I find oftentimes we have to, we have to, we have to uh, decline a lot of things. It's like you ever put a jigsaw puzzle together and you come to that one little spot and it looks like, and here's one sitting over here and it looks, you say to yourself, that's got to be the one. I can't see the other one. It's got to be the one. And you take that little piece and it looks like it almost fits, but it's not exactly right. And you try to cram it in there to make it fit. But it's not intended to be there because it does not fit. And then hiding under this other one over here, you see, oh, I didn't even see you there. You flip one up. There's one hiding under there. How did that get under there? Oh, it's just perfect. It's just perfect. But until you decline that one that almost fits, you'll never find the one that really does fit. It's like that in our walk with the Lord. It is. Oftentimes it's like that. So he said, don't you know what these are? It's the branches, the olive trees on the side. I said, no. I, I said, no, my Lord. He said, these are the two anointed ones, he said, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, can you ever find a lot of offerings in terms of what that means. And you know what the best thing to do with, with much of it? Is to leave it. Leave it. Let it lie. Let it lie. Let it lie for now. Because the piece that really fits is just over here, just out of sight at the moment. But in the right time, it's going to be suddenly be seen. And you all you say, oh, now I know. Now I know. But see, this premature arriving at a conclusion on things is a real problem because it, it, it occupies the mind and it, it basically corrupts 
the thinking. It corrupts and hinders the thinking so that the truth of something is more difficult to obtain and to recognize because the thoughts on that, on that subject are already there but incorrect and flawed. But they get in the way. Those, flawed, those thoughts get in the way. Why do we have them? Because we could not bear saying, I don't know. I don't know, and neither do you know. And somebody rises up with the answer. And we rush in and accept it. Why do we do that? Let me close with just a couple of simple observations this morning. And so the, the idea this morning would be this, that in all of the concerns that we have with regards to prayer and intercession and our heart's desire on behalf of our loved ones, and we know the need to know the Lord in a very vibrant and personal way. We know that, and they do not have it. And we're praying for them. And we know that the key to the success is not just in what we do from the outside, but it's what the Spirit of the Lord and His Word does on the inside. Again, go back to this idea of the victory is uh, made possible because of uh, a hidden column, the idea on the inside. That one who works on the inside. So if He is working, let me read this to you as I close. If He is working in there, if He, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, is working in there, on the inside, in there. And, if He is working in you, will there not be a mutual recognition? Will there not be a mutual recognition? And the Spirit of God is working in the person with whom you are talking and, and working with and praying for and interceding for and viewing and observing and caring for. The Spirit of the Lord is working on the inside of that person. And if the same Spirit is working on the inside of you, will there not be a mutual recognition? Yes, there will be. And look for this. Look for this to guide the time and place of your labor for the Master. Look for that. Now you think about it with me just for one more, more moment before we close. And you know, you, what I'm saying right now, you know what I'm saying. You've had that happen many times. Where you have worked with someone and you know that you are prepared by the, by the Lord, by His Word and Spirit, and you've met a person, you've talked to them, you're engaged with people. It could be anywhere, at any time, in any place. And there's something that begins to happen to you. There's a drawing. There's a kind of a communication. There's a spiritual drawing that you have towards working with that person, towards that person. You see something there that you can recognize by your spirit. What is that? Spirit of the Lord who's working in there. He's working in there. And He's working in you. And He that is working in them and He that is working with you is the same. Is the same. Not different, but the same. And so you know that. 
and you're drawn to that, that's your place of labor. That's your field of labor. That's the time and the place of your labor for the master right there. Look for that. And don't try to spend all your time when you don't have that. Continue to pray because when the Lord provides that in another place, another field of labor, then's the moment for that is the moment for you then to say, this is the time and place of my labor for the Lord now. And that applies to our loved ones. And that applies to our children and our loved ones and our co-workers and with all those. And the Lord loves them all equally. His love is... Uh, he's not a respecter of persons with regards to His love. Now when I say He's not a respecter of persons, I have to be careful I'm not misunderstood. It doesn't mean that he values uh, everybody or sees everybody exactly the same with regards to his approval, because he does not. He approves of certain things. He approves of certain people. He approves of certain actions. He disapproves of others. But it means essentially, intrinsically, fundamentally, his love and concern is for all men. That's what it means. Without preference, based on color of skin or ethnicity or sex or anything else. That's what it means. But it doesn't mean that he does not discriminate with regards to his what he approves of. Well, look for this to guide the time and place of your labor for the Master. Can we say amen to that? Just amen. Amen.